Hello, everybody, and welcome to Reason Town, episode 24. This is Murphy Randall, and I'm here today with Yawar Amin. Did I say it right? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having <laughs> me. Well, we're glad to have you, Yawar. And let's do a little bit of introduction. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, um, like where you're from, what you're doing, why we're even talking, what makes you so awesome? Just give them a quick <laughs> background. Sure. Sure. So I'm a software developer based in Canada. So uh, I've been working mostly with Scala. So um, I like functional programming. I like type-driven development. And uh, I gravitated towards this stuff. And uh, I gravitated towards the OCaml ecosystem a few years ago because I found that it had a nice mix of uh, type, you know, functional and pragmatism. And when I saw Reason, I kind of got drawn into it because of the community. Interesting. Just the great kind of people that hang out and everybody is really friendly. And that's what really attracted me to Reason. Okay. So when so you're doing Scala mostly, you're saying, and that's like at work. So you get paid to do Scala, right? Yeah. Day job is Scala for about five or six years now. Uh, different jobs, but yeah, mostly Scala. And then Reason's where you just hang out for fun. Reason is, uh, well, I, I hope it's not going to be um, just for fun forever, but uh, that's okay. what I'm doing right now, yeah. Okay, great. So this is like, you're doing side projects, you're engaged and interested in the community just because it piques your interest, not so much because your employers have you do it or anything. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Very cool. So what's your background? Academic, self-taught, what kind of thing? Uh, mostly self-taught. Um, bachelor's in... Um, commerce and majoring in econometrics so kind of math drawn to math and stuff like that and i found that uh type systems and programming languages kind of um, tickle my fun you know you know (laughs) yeah uh, bone when i um work on that kind of stuff so uh that's what attracts me to type systems and programming languages like that you know if i'll take a quick aside if you don't mind i was thinking about this today because uh when I was younger, I was into 3D animation quite a bit, and I, I started using open source 3D animation software, and my dad just couldn't believe it. He was like, how can it be free? There's no way that it's free. There are no free lunches. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's open source. Open source is a real thing. And he just didn't understand it. Um, I'm starting to see that a yeah. little more now in the wave of this this pandemic that's going on that, you know, it, it costs money for everyone to do something. Um, I'm starting to understand his perspective better. But then I started thinking about open source and it's just, I thought, why does it exist? Why, why does it work? And I think it's largely thanks to, to people who really pushed on it years ago, but also because of people like you and me who spend our evenings doing programming because it's what tickles our, is that, what do you say? Tickles our fun center? Is that what you said? Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. I think you said it really, really well. It's uh, just, we're just, the majority of us are just like this long tail of uh, just individuals and big teams of like two or three people just ad hoc working on our evenings and weekends. And um, we come up with all this stuff because we just, it, it somehow feels like we're solving a puzzle or we're achieving something it just feels um, like something cool to do, I guess. Yeah, wouldn't it be interesting if, if there were like open source engineering projects where people just like went and hung out together and built bridges? I'd be, yeah, I'd be afraid uh, to use them. <laughs> but, but I if, know, there's some efforts now with the, the COVID situation. People are asking, hey, what can we do? 
And That's I'm true. seeing, yeah, some, oh, you can run folding at home on your computer and stuff like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of that. So you do. So are you actively involved in any open source projects right now? What's your main stuff you do in in uh, OCaml and Reason? Right now, mainly I'm kind of working on ReWeb, which is a little native OCaml slash Reason web framework that I've been working on for a few months now. Uh, and it came out of ideas that um, were kind of that came out in this article a few months ago by this developer called Jossim. Uh, and uh, he expressed the need for, or the, the, that there would be a really great niche for an OCaml web framework with kind of the ease of use and, and type safety, um, combining uh, both best of both worlds and combining the ability to get into a flow state when you're writing code and, mm. and just being productive. And, and that really kind of hit me uh, because I thought that, you know what, OCaml, especially on the native side, it, it, it really has that potential. And I thought that maybe, maybe, I, can, maybe I can do something with this. And I, I started exploring and, you know, just been working on it for fun. Okay, so I'm going to put a pin in that because I really want to come back to that. We're going to spend sure. a good part of the episode talking about that. First, let's get a little bit to talking about... Um, in the pre-show, you and I were talking a little bit, and and you talked a little bit about idioms, about idiomatic yes. type-driven development, and you literally wrote the yes. book on this, meaning there's yes. a book <laughs> you wrote that we'll link to in the show notes <laughs> about this. And so when people come into yeah. in the Discord channel, they're often asking, like, what's the best way to think about problem-solving in OCaml and Reason, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, a lot of people, uh, they come in and they're beginners and then they're at the intermediate stage or they're, some people are fairly advanced. But I, I see a lot of people, once they stick with it for a while, they become intermediate and they kind of start asking, how do I structure code? How do I, you know, write stuff safely? How do I take advantage of the language's abilities and powers? And uh, a, a lot of us are like, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff that you can take advantage of, uh, but... You have to, first of all, the first thing that uh, that comes to my mind whenever I see questions like this is to, to always want, want to say, step back a little bit and ramp up a little bit slower. Don't immediately jump into GADTs and stuff like that type level. Like think about functions, types, modules. How can you, how can I use these things uh, idiomatically? And, and a lot of these idioms that, you know, I, I'm, I'm influenced a lot by by uh, learning OCaml first. So I read real-world OCaml. I've, I'm influenced by that quite a lot. So I always think about uh, and talk about how can you um, write good modules, write nice modules, small modules, give them types, give them the functions, um, separate them from each other, in, in a, obviously in a modular way. And, and these kinds of um, patterns, uh, for example, um, Leandro Ostera, a uh, few like a year or a couple of years ago, he had he, he started collecting these reason slash OCaml design patterns. He has, he has a really really cool repo where he uh, where he put them together, and a lot of these patterns come down to they keep coming down to use modules, use interfaces, and they give you kind of like superpowers in um, reason so to organize your code 
Yeah. I, I am absolutely in love with modules. Every time I go to use just JavaScript or even, yeah. even Scala, um, I, I totally yeah. miss the ad hoc modules. Well, not ad hoc, but, yeah. but I'm sorry, the, uh, the low resistance make yeah. a module anywhere idea with reason. Exactly. Oh, I just love it. But I, I, this is interesting how you're talking about don't jump in too quickly. Um, don't sure. jump too deep in too quickly. Because when I, it took me like a year and a half to really start to grasp what functors are in OCaml. A functors yeah. meaning basically uh, it's like, it's like higher order modules in a way. It's a mm. module, the module version of functions for, I know you already know what they are, but for those who are listening, yeah. um, you can pass in a module to a module function that produces another module. And in, yeah. in the, uh, okay. In the real world old camel book. And also uh, in the reason docs, it says like, this is an advanced thing. You shouldn't, Yes. using this all over the place. And I was like, whatever, this is awesome. And I started using yeah. it all over the place. But after about six months or so of that, I was like, you know, actually, I think that most yeah. of what I'm doing with functors could be done with functions and modules in a simpler yes. way. And so I've, I've kind of come back from the edge there. <laughs> and yeah. I think yeah. there are still cases to use it, but it, but it definitely raises the mental complexity significantly mm -hmm. when we enter, enter functor land, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I and whenever whenever I look at um, some some problem that I'm trying to solve, and I and I hear this a lot from other people as well, uh, it's like, uh, you know, you know what? We could probably do this with a functor, but then um, the API gets more complex. You have to tell your users how to use it. Um, you and you know, it just adds a ton of complexity there. Is there a way that we can do this without a functor? That's like the kind of thought that goes to, to our heads uh, a lot of the time when we when we look at functors. And you can get away without them for quite a lot of things. For example, uh, say you want to make new types, uh, like in Scala, you would do a um, case class extends any val or whatever in Haskell or something like that. So in OCaml, you don't need a functor, or sorry, reason, you don't need a functor. You can spin up a module type and a module and spin up new modules with new types, um, you know, as much as you like. So just the, just the very bare bones modules and module types interfaces, they give you so much power just from the get go. Really far. Yeah. And that's what I started to figure out. I actually wrote, I was writing a web framework as well based on, on express and I did it heavily using functors and quickly realized yeah. All of these could be functions, and it wasn't quite as beautiful mm. syntactically, but it was a yeah. lot easier to, to use. And so I, I, I stripped them out, and uh, the, the current version just uses plain old functions. So I guess there's a temptation to be fancy a lot of times when really simplicity does the job a lot better. Yeah, and for sure. so Okay, so tell me, I didn't mean to get us too distracted by functors. Tell me, <laughs> no what are some of the, the questions that you get, that you field on Discord, where you, you see a lot of people coming in and maybe over and over again, you end up saying like, all right, let's yeah. change the way you're thinking about this now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one thing that I see a lot is, um, and, and this is one of my pet projects that I'm trying to convince everybody of, is that how do I... Uh, make something private? How do I um, hide some details of my module? And uh, a lot of people are, when I tell them, hey, you have to write an interface file for that. And people kind of don't like it at first. And yeah. <laughs> this is the same thing in the OCaml community as well. There's been a lot of questions about that. 
And I, I'm, I, I try to convince people, hey, look, you got to change your mindset a little bit because uh, these interfaces are really here, here to help you to uh, write safer code. Um, for, so like, for example, one of, the, one of the best points that I've seen about this is that when you have an interface for your module and you change some implementation detail, you'll actually get a compile error saying that you're about to break your Surface API for your end mm. user. And this is, you know, just a huge help. Without that, you're, you might, for example, change the representation of some type and it's going to, and you won't realize it, but your downstream users who are consuming your library, they will for sure feel that build break pain. Uh, so this is something, you know, it, it, it helps you. It's kind of like, kind of the way to think about it is like double entry accounting. You have your debits and your credits and the they're a check and a balance against each other. So it's the same way with interfaces. And and uh, recently, um, Bob, um, you know, Bob, uh, the creator of BuckleScript, he actually introduced a really cool feature into BuckleScript, uh, the let private um, uh, binding. Uh, so you can actually make some very quick ad hoc private um, bindings in, in your module without using an interface file. But even in the announcement of that feature, uh, Bob explicitly said that um, interfaces should be preferred for most cases. Let private is only for ad hoc and very quick testing purposes and uh, initial exploration purposes and stuff like that. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me then a little bit, because I almost never use interface files. And that's mm -hmm. also because I'm almost never publishing anything publicly. So yes. in my work at at work and in my own side projects, I'm pretty much always just everything's public. I don't use interface mm -hmm. files. And um, yeah. that's been pretty much fine. So is that how you do it too? Uh, yes. In fact, I, like my philosophy is use an interface only if your module fits certain criteria. Otherwise, do the simplest possible thing, right? And don't use the interface. Uh, if you are publishing the module somewhere, if you have to hide some uh, members of the module, if you have to hide some implementation details of the types, then yeah, use an interface, but otherwise don't bother. And even, even these rules are kind of flexible because as you said, often you're building an end user app, you're not building a library to publish. So you don't really even need to follow those strict guidelines to hide those implementation details because you're the only user of those details. Right. So the app itself is consuming it. Now, if you want to, if you don't trust yourself and you'd like to uh, protect yourself in the future, it might be worth yeah. the time. In fact, one time I did use uh, interface files be, is specifically for opacifying a type, if that makes sense. Because uh, uh, yeah. like creating a new type that, that was a type alias, and the compiler yes. will always show you the guts of the type alias, right? Unless you use an inter interface file. So I had this type that was like an abstraction over a promise of a result. And the error yeah. messages were horrid, but I wanted it mm. to be easier to look at. So I made the type opaque. I exposed mm. functions in the, uh, I exposed the type in the interface file, but not the implementation of the type. Yes. And, and then functions to work with it. And that really cleaned up the API. So that's where you're saying if yes. you're making a public facing thing, you can really simplify the surface area of your API by adding an interface file. Yeah. In fact, you can almost think of what you did as documenting your intention that this type is something discrete by itself, not just a composition of promises and results and stuff like that. Like this thing has its own meaning. 
And that's what you did by giving an interface to it. I love it. Yeah. So then, so let's uh, talk for a second about the book, Type Driven Development. Specifically, what, if you had like two or three sentences to express what that means, what, what's the core of type-driven development versus any other kind of development? Uh, the core of type-driven development, in my opinion, is that types are uh, propositions and values are proofs. And this is, uh, you, know, you know, a lot of people know about this as just something called the Curry-Howard isomorphism or uh, correspondence. It's okay. a, um, and this is not something from the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> this is, uh, uh, it's a, it's a kind of like a mathy thing, which says that if you have a type of something and that you write a value of the type, then you, you proved something about the world. Uh, for example, if you have a type that says that, um, you know, I, I have a function which takes, um, two numbers and gives back a number, um, and you implement that function, then you prove that you can actually take two numbers and give back a number. So using this idea that um, types are propositions or assertions that you make about your model and your code base, and by implementing them and proving them, you are saying that uh, the, uh, the code base fits the mental model that you think it does, and it, the compiler checked that for you. I love that. That's great. Uh, what a cool way to think of types rather than just restraints. I think a lot of people feel like types are just there to, to lock them in place. But rather, right, right. you're saying that first you express your intentions in the type system, and then right. you express the implementation of your intentions with the values at the value exactly. level. Okay. And you prove it. You prove what you set out to prove. And as in, insofar as your type system is expressive, you can either prove more about your source code or... Uh, as so far as you could trust it, right? So that's why something, a language like Julia, if that's if I'm correct about that, which offers more type checking around values than, mm. than a system like Reason does, right? I believe mm. that in Julia, can't you say like, I'm going to place restraints on this type. So for example, it's an int, mm. but it's an int between the values of six and 24. Ah, right. Uh, like a subtype. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I haven't actually looked into Julia, but it sounds really cool. Uh, certainly, it's kind of taking the numerical uh, computing field a little bit by storm, I think. Oh, yeah? Because people are looking for a fast alternative to Python. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I've seen this before in languages like Ada, for example, which is right. known for being really type safe. And uh, they force or they encourage you to... Uh, really uh, lock down your types as much as possible. So what you said, giving a number uh, a range so that you get a subtype of that number uh, is something that Reason cannot do, actually. And it's it's a really cool ability. But it also makes the type system significantly, have to work significantly harder. Uh, yes, and so that's, absolutely. I, I'm glad that we have this trade-off because OCaml tries to give us, I, I bet, kind of like the 80%. Like it, it's really fast. Yeah. Um, but it also doesn't offer quite as many features, even as TypeScript or Scala, I would say. But that's also yeah. why I would say TypeScript and Scala are both extremely slow compared to OCaml as far They're as the complex. type, the, the compiler goes. Yeah, exactly. So um, the um, what I what I keep also thinking about and um, talking about a lot is that the reason in OCaml types instance are the the type system is actually really really 
simple. The, the core of the type system is really, really simple. You can actually fit the um, type inference algorithm, the Hendley-Milner algorithm in your head if you want. Like it ha It's like a one-page, one, in mathematical terms, it's a one-page um, description of the algorithm with the, you know, broken down into several pieces. Uh, and what I feel is that uh, the, 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 uh, the other type systems that you have right now that are driven by flow typing, like uh, TypeScript, they kind of bend over in like, kind of like they twist themselves like pretzels to be able to model JavaScript's uh, dyna uh, dynamic behavior. Mm -hmm. And Reason just doesn't do that. So a lot of people come and say that, hey, I can't do this and I can't do that with Reason. Uh, and I have to kind of like slowly kind of convince them that, um, you know, try to try to adopt a more reason mentality. You know, the idioms are, are there, uh, the, the abilities are there. You just have to adjust your way of thinking a little bit. Actually, I think that's really cool. And so I came from a background of thinking that Haskell was really cool. I'm not going to say I came from a Haskell background because I was never able to write any of it successfully, but I yeah. thought it was cool. And one of the things I liked about it was that in Haskell, the, um, the, they would push effects, Haskell and Elm both, they push effects mm. out to the, to the edges of the program. So they would yeah. say, just use pure data inside. If you want to do an effectful thing, like, you know, running a, running a, an internet query or something like that, or a database query, yeah. you encode that in data, push it to the runtime, let the runtime execute it, and then give you the result, essentially. Haskell's less pure than Elm is. But point is yeah. that they're saying, push your effects to the outside. In, in reason, mm. you can do effects on the inside of the language, which I actually appreciate. But what you're saying here yeah. that's interesting is that reason's type system approach is saying push dynamism to the outside, to the borders of the program, yeah. which I love because yeah. what you're saying, 99% of the time, the things that you can do, the things that you are going to be doing in your app, you can do within the type system that in a non-dynamic yeah. way. Right. And then if you're going to, if you're going to break out of the type system to do some clever dynamic thing, you push it to the edges, you drop it out to JS uh, to JavaScript right. or to C if you're doing OCaml, right? Um, and right. and you write that the dynamic code in a specific place that's isolated, mm -hmm. that's easy to spot if something goes wrong, and then you you yeah. use an external reference into your code. And I think that's really cool because yeah. you're saying, well, you could you could still do dynamic stuff all you want, just write it in JavaScript mm -hmm. and push it out to the edges. So try to think as the least amount of dynamic as possible, but then when mm -hmm. you need to. And when I'm saying dynamic here, for those who are listening and don't understand what we're talking about, we're saying things like, let's say you get an object at runtime and you want to infer what the keys are and like uh, generate some, like call some function with the name of one of the keys on the object, for example, that you can't, you can't do that in, in reason. Yeah. You can't like inspect the field name and dynamically pick a function, but you can do yeah. that in JavaScript, right? Yes, exactly. And the beautiful thing is that you can encapsulate that in its own module you can push that functionality out into its own module. You give the module uh, its own interface. Uh, you make it, uh, and you can actually make it type safe uh, to an external user, like the consuming the consuming modules can look at it and they can treat it as if it's fully, completely safe because you set up the internals of the module to encapsulate the dynamism and uh, push, you know, interact with it safely. Which is a similar idea with encapsulating mutable state as well, because OCaml yeah. allows mutable state, but it's not generally encouraged. It's not the default 
But if you want to encapsulate it inside of a module, go ahead and use it for the sake of performance. But don't, exactly. don't give it to your consumers, right? I love that. I think yeah. that's really cool. Okay, great. Well, do you want to talk about anything else about uh, about idioms or type-driven development before we move on to reweb? Sure, sure. Uh, just uh, you know, something that I touched on a little bit. Um, often people are slightly, you know, um, uh, or con- confused or or a little bit, um, uh, you know, uh, they don't quite know how to approach. Uh, modeling JavaScript types in, when they're writing bindings for BuckleScript and Reason. Oh yeah, and, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's you know you, you, I see that a lot, and I think um, people have you know they're dealing with these functions which return different things and they take different arguments, and I I really feel that what helped me to 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 understand these things was to to actually understand the reason and OCaml type inference algorithm a little bit better. Uh, and to understand how the the compiler would think about how type should be inferred, like a function that takes some values and gives you back a result, you can actually inspect the function a little bit and put the types together of the of the inputs and the output, kind of almost like a puzzle. It's like you're putting, putting the pieces of a puzzle together and they all fit together if the function is implemented correctly or in a you know fairly in a normal static way, um, you can actually bring that knowledge back and encode it using the BuckleScript binding system, uh, FFI externals, uh, and I think it's really helpful to to think of it like that. And I'll throw in a note there that if you're just getting used to the externals, don't worry, you'll get more yeah. used to it. It is significantly complex, but also yeah. like it's complex. The syntax is complex because it's ex- incredibly expressive. I was really mm-hmm. impressed by the power of the FFI system, but it is difficult to get at first. And also I feel sure. like, I feel like there's a lot of art involved in writing bindings for JavaScript stuff yeah. because there, there's a definite large range, a wide range of mm. styles of bindings that can happen. It sounds simple, yeah. like, oh yeah, you just write a binding, like it just behaves the same way the JavaScript one does. But it's there, there are artistic decisions that go into how do I want to make this JavaScript library feel to a reason user, right? And oh. I've I've wrapped like database code in my, I mentioned this on the last episode, but I've wrapped the database code in my main project like four times because there are many different ways to do it. And I keep uh, learning, I, I keep getting, yeah. uh, be, becoming a better artist, you might say, at, yeah. <laughs> at wrapping those things. So if you're just starting wrapping, maybe maybe just try it and then recognize that you might need to do it a few times, uh, three or four yeah. times. Exactly. Thing. And um, people talk about um, writing wrappings. And uh, nowadays we are, we kind of like think about um, wrappings in, in different styles. Like you have the, the really raw style, the bare bone style where you just wrap just absolutely the minimum possible. And then there's other styles where you wrap the wrappings a little bit more and you know, there's a lot of different things. Yeah. yeah and, and some of them are more reason-ish where you're using uh, algebraic data types and, um, and wrapping things in modules and stuff and others where it's just like, here's a collection of functions that take strings, right? Which is kind of yeah. how JavaScript works. Um, exactly. And I'll throw in that if you're starting a project and looking for all kinds of libraries that reason that are pre-wrapped for reason and that don't exist, that can be frustrating. Um, but it, it, that, that's where we are right now, because if you want to use JavaScript libraries, um, they're just not, a lot of them aren't going to be wrapped. So what I've done in my projects is I actually usually end up 
writing wrappings for them, but only for one or two functions for my own project, because I don't really have the overhead, the time available to, to wrap like 20 libraries and publish them on NPM and maintain them. And that's okay. You don't have to do that. If you're, if you're just getting, if you're just doing a project, just download the library and wrap three functions and you're good for yourself. And so that's, yeah, wrap as you go. That's okay. Cause I, if, what we don't want for sure is anyone to try to come and use reason and feel intimidated by all the wrapping work that like thinking, oh no, if I want to use Firebase, I better wrap the whole Firebase API and publish the library to NPM so that everyone can use it. That's of course, it's going to be too intimidating, right? So just That's tough. do what you need to do and, and move forward. If you're just, if you want to get used to it. Um, although exactly ship ship, right. Cause obviously it'd be great to have those, those existing. And there are people working on wrappings that will be a, a community resource, but that shouldn't stop you from shipping. Right. Exactly. Awesome. Okay. Anything else before we talk about reweb? Uh, no, I think we're good to go. Okay. Let's talk about reweb. This is kind of cool to me. This is exciting. I'm excited for this conversation because I have, I am one of like the few people I know who's been actively using reason server side, but I don't use it native. So for listeners who have like, they're like, what, what does that mean? Um, I use reason on the server to wrap JavaScript code to run on Node.js. So I'm basically writing JavaScript to run on Node, and that's, that's what I'm doing. That's the research I've been doing. That's the experimentation I've been doing. But Reason Native is for Mac and Windows and Linux, uh, OCaml. Basically, you can write OCaml code with Reason syntax and compile it to platform-specific code, just like you would with C or just like you would with uh, any of the Rust, you know, many other languages. So, th so basically, you're writing OCaml and... And what ReWeb is, is a web framework for the OCaml ecosystem, correct? So you wouldn't be using Node. You wouldn't be using any of Node's HTTP abstractions. This is entirely OCaml world. Right. It's uh, run and compiled as a um, native executable binary. Which is awesome. Uh, and My yeah, Node modules it's... folder is like 900 megabytes when I try to deploy. <laughs> oh, man. That's, yes, yeah. it's bad. <laughs> anyway, keep uh, going. Yeah, so the um, the idea behind uh, ReWeb was that uh, a few months ago, I think probably more than a year now, uh, a Reason developer uh, called Jossim Abit, he wrote this really cool article, um, uh, blog post about how Reason and OCaml have uh, really a lot of potential to um, enable developers to write applications uh, with the pr productivity of Ruby and Rails, because they are so they just they just the way that they um, uh, let you write it lets you kind of get into a flow state of writing code, because it's it's very minimalistic. There's uh, no almost no type annotations required when you're just flowing the code out, and uh, it's and, and also it enables the type safety aspect of it, which um, you know kind of gives you the best of both worlds. So. And, and there's and there's a real need for that in in the in the community in the ecosystem, uh, or there was you know when he was writing this, and probably still probably still is, and a lot of people are and and, and and you know you can you can tell that there's a need because a lot of people are doing it right. So for example, you're working on Sorbet, uh, other people are working on other stuff, and just the other day somebody announced uh, Seal, I think it's called. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, it's. Uh, I believe it's actually using Sorbet and some parts of uh, of its implementation, 
but it's kind of like even more of a Rails-y wrapping. They have like, you know, um, Rails like um, uh, scaffolding and stuff like that. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. So I have to look at that for are, sure. For sure. Uh, SIHL. A lot of people are working on that kind of stuff. And, I, and uh, so what ReWeb is, is kind of my take on it, which is I feel at this point, I'm, I'm slightly scared to say it, but uh, it probably not as Rails-like as I would have, um, you know, as I was probably telling people in the beginning. Uh, it's more Express-like in okay. a sense, in the way that you put things together. But it's um, uh, based on the idea of uh, this uh, really cool concept of designing servers um, that um, started out at Twitter. Uh, this uh, person called Marius Erickson at Twitter, he wrote this um, he published this little, little paper about it called Your Server as a Function. And the way that you, the, it encourages you to think about servers and clients is that servers are um, simply functions which take an input and give you a promise of a result. And clients are exactly the same thing. They take the input and they give you a promise of a result. So they're kind of like mirror images of each other. And if you express servers in that way, they kind of compose together really well because you can write middleware, which you call filters, and compose them together just by using function calls. And everything is just a function. Uh, servers, uh, middlewares, services, everything just becomes functions, and you can compose those functions with each other just by calling them. And so that's how ReWeb is designed, but uh, there's an additional layer of type safety on top of that, which I managed to add by uh, designing the types in that way, uh, which makes um, sure that you can um, design filters which only work at uh, with certain parts um, or when they're put into certain positions in the request response pipeline. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's, and that's type checked and, and, and you know, you get errors uh, at compile time. Uh, so for example, you can uh, read a request body and then you can, uh, with one filter, with another filter, you can transform the body into JSON. Another filter, you can decode the JSON into some strongly typed data. And these filters can be put together only in the correct order, any other order, and they won't compile. Love that. So that's, yeah. So that's what I found really interesting and uh, exciting about it. Uh, the, when, you, when you design it, uh, in, in just this functional style, uh, the functional programming approach actually really nicely enables a type-driven approach uh, just by virtue of just uh, like the, the, the sense that I get from it is that the functional style uh, kind of fits in really well uh, with the type-driven way of thinking. So that's what I'm that I, what I've been trying to achieve. But at the same time, you know, like we spoke about, um, there's there's a there's a point where you go a little bit too far, and and the, at points at some at some points I was definitely tending towards that, and I had to pull myself back, and I had to kind of like I had to think about what is the vision and the what what's the focus for reweb, and the the focus of reweb is being able to uh, let you design these uh, type-safe request response pipelines, but not necessarily um, other things. For example, a lot of people are interested in type-safe routing nowadays. So for example, you can, um, um, what, do you say, what do you say, match routes on requests uh, only if they uh, 
have the correct type. So, for example, slash pages slash one has to be one has to be a number. Right. And that only then does the route match. I actually didn't do anything like that with regards to routes because I felt that that wasn't the main focus point of Reweb. I just uh, kept the routes really simple, just the same way that you have in the Reason React router, in fact. I kept them as just a list of strings so that I, I put my focus somewhere else. You know, that's actually how and, I did Surbay as well. Surbay actually yeah. ha- it has a parameter for uh, for checking those types and aborting if they're wrong. So you still get types, you can still get type safety after the path has been parsed, but it doesn't like fail the route, for example, if it's not the yes. right type. Exactly. And, and that's one of the, um, like, I guess a philosophical difference, but uh, I also feel that uh, a route should not fail to match if it's not the right type. It should still match, but then it should fail later. You know, and things like that. Uh, and so with Reweb, what's happening is that uh, it enables like you to very quickly and very nimbly set up um, services. And, you know, it, it has certain abilities right now, uh, but it's fairly raw and not quite finished yet. But, uh, for example, you can um, set up WebSockets right now. You can uh, set up a, uh, like a, a cache uh, inside the server itself, cool. you can do a couple of other things, uh, which are um, uh, just kind of like in progress. And I, one of the things that I'm excited about also for Reweb is that I've I believe that it is compiling and the tests are passing on Windows, at least on Azure Pipelines Windows VM that I'm trying out right now. I just have to convince it to um, uh, ca- um, properly set up the build cache um, to to pass the build. But awesome. I, I do believe that it will work on Windows if someone wants to try it out. So th- yeah, that actually leads me into ask you uh, um, to tell me about why why Reweb versus Oxygen, for example, um, because no, that's a Oxygen, very good question. So that's an existing framework for the OCaml ecosystem that comes from it, it's kind of an open source community effort. I've never mm-hmm. seriously looked into it. I've looked at the website, mm-hmm. but always uh, never really got it. If that makes sense, it doesn't feel like. Mm-hmm feel like it's accessible to me. And so I understand why start something new, but I'm curious from your point of view, why not oxygen? Ox- oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, actually, it's it's really funny because I feel pretty much the same way you do. Uh, I look at it, I look at oxygen, I look at Eliom, I look at JSFO Camel, and I see how they're put together with a lot of care and a lot of craft. And obviously they've been uh, doing this for many, many years and they've put together this amazing thing, but I don't feel like it's accessible because uh, it it doesn't make, in my view, the right trade-offs. Like it goes all in on certain aspects of type safety. Um, They have their own um, uh, HTML, XML, DSL called DIXML. Uh, which a lot of people are excited about, but I haven't really looked into it too much. But um, the the way that it's all set up is that it's it's a really like a turnkey solution for a full stack application, and they've had it that way for quite a while now. And you really have to commit to the entire part to the entire solution uh, to be able to take advantage of it. Uh, they are full stack. They are tierless. Um, for example, you can write your code in a a special variant of OCaml um, that Oxygen provides, and they compile it down to both client and server side for you. Wow! So, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Okay, that's the power. You know, the power of Oxygen and Elion. Uh, but 
in exchange for that power, uh, you know, like you said, like uh, like your dad said, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So you have to commit to it. You have to um, uh, get all in into that system and figure out how everything works. Yeah. It's not just an incremental, I'll start using this and get it a little bit at a time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not, so for, for example, with ReWeb, you can spin up a service with just like, just an echo service, like in like five lines of code. Okay. Um, after downloading, you know, and running the easy build and install. So that's what I kind of felt like, you know, to give an express level of um, startup speed uh, would be appropriate. And that's why people love express. It's just the simplicity of, I just need to mm-hmm. think about getting an, an API going right now. Right. And that's, it's just, just so simple to do it. that. Um, so tell me then exactly. we're almost out of time, but I'm really interested in HTTP AF versus, um, LWT, right? So these are kind uh, of. Is uh, that well, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of. Uh, it's funny these dualities are there in OCaml. Uh, so you have HTTPF, uh, which is the newer one, versus CoHTTP, which is the slightly oh, older that's one. That's right. CoHTTP. Sorry. Uh, and you have LWT and versus you have async. That's so right. you have all these decisions to make in the OCaml ecosystem about I, what I, you want to use. I almost literally just compared apples to oranges. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell I do like zero native reason. Okay, but. <laughs> So I've been, I was reading some posts because yeah. I was looking into native uh, OCaml mm-hmm. on the server. And as far as I could tell, it felt like people were saying like, yeah, it's not really like super performant right now. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of problems, especially with CoHTTP. Now that you mm-hmm. refresh my memory, CoHTTP had some real problems scaling and, and mm-hmm. handling memory as soon as you added more than a few requests per second. Is that correct? Yeah, from what I remember, the the, the rationale for the, the person who started the HTTPF project was that OHTTP was uh, getting saturated on, um, you know, higher level of requests, and it wasn't, you know, handling the uh, request response um, uh, flow properly. Okay. Uh, so, realistically, uh, like, when you're starting out, when you're writing a native server, maybe that level of performance is not that important. You know, right. uh, maybe I don't know, but uh, I mean, is some that like people a few hundred way. requests per second, or a few like nine hundred, or like ten requests per second? Like, I think it was more like a hundred thousand or something like that. Oh well, that should. I mean, most people are never ever going to even reach that. So, uh, if you know, I might be. I mean, I might be totally off base okay. here by like an order of magnitude. I have to look, go and look at that graph again. Okay, uh, but yes, like. A lot of people are quite comfortable with using GoHTTP. For example, the Mirage project, which is one of the coolest things in the OCaml ecosystem, uh, which is uh, the, the Unikernel project, they use GoHTTP uh, in their Unikernels. Yeah. Okay. So I am like pretty ignorant of of the native system, ecosystem, and, and the people that are involved in it. So I'm curious. I haven't really heard of anyone outside of like Jane Street using... Mm. I, OCaml for their servers. And I, as far as I know, Jane Street just doesn't even do HTTP. They do like their own protocol over yeah. over sockets or something like that. That's so what I've you, heard, yeah. Are there people actively using OCaml as their server-side solution that you're aware of? Uh, well, um, Sean Grove is, I think. For, that's right. That's right. Uh, I forgot. Wonder. I'm sorry, Sean. I forgot. That. <laughs> yes. You're using... That's right. He's using it. Um, right. Okay. And keep going. And, do you know of anyone else? And I think... Darklang is probably using OCaml as well. Uh, as far as I know, they're using GoHTTP. Okay, uh, I might be wrong about that. Um, Paul Bigger, uh, he was he actually gave a talk as well at the last recent conference in Chicago, and uh, they talked about Sean and Paul both kind of like they kind of both went into the ups and downs of getting into Reason and the native ecosystem as well. Um, 
well, uh, who else? Um, I'm sure there's there's quite a few, but um, probably don't talk. Like, they probably don't talk about it much. It's probably they probably cool. don't talk about it much. Cool. Yeah, exactly. So that's interesting. Okay, so tell me, you chose HTTP AF as your underlying tool for right. for reweb. Um, what drove that decision? Uh, well, I looked at HTTPF and I looked at CoHTTP uh, and I, I honestly, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, like a, a nerd thing or a fanboy thing, but I kind of nerded out over HTTPF a bit more than I did for CoHTTP. Okay. Uh, I felt that HTTPF was doing something cool and, um, you know, I just wanted to take a look at it. It's, it's one of those things, you know, you just, you, you kind of make a choice and, uh, I admit that I was drawn by the performance claims and, uh, <laughs> uh you know, I, and oh, that's all, shame. that's all fine and well. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun to dig into. And, um, you know, um, uh, Antonio Montero, uh, one of the, um, uh, greatest, um, uh, guys in the Reason ecosystem, he does a lot of work uh, on the native backend side as well. He gave a ReasonConf talk as well in Chicago, uh, where he spoke about how he uses it for some Lambda services on AWS. And he maintains, or rather, he kind of sometimes works on a couple of these uh, HTTPF and associated projects. And so I decided that I would use his forks uh, cool. Because he's done a little bit of work to improve them, and uh, you know, uh, really, I really enjoy the back and forth with them about the, about them. So, I, I stuck with uh, HTTPF and the associated projects. Well, then, stay tuned, listeners, because we'll be talking to Antonio in a couple weeks as well. Awesome. Um, so that's great. So then, tell me really quickly before we wrap. I'm curious to know what jobs does HTTPF do? Does it do body parsing? Does it just do request parsing? Does it handle multiple requests? Like, what what's its main? Mm-hmm main uh, part uh HTTPF gives you a, a request um and it, it allows you to process it and give it back a response okay uh which is basically what reweb does but HTTPF does it in uh like a slightly more low level way um it it exposes a bit more mutability a bit more power uh allows you to um process um certain uh, things in a in a bit more raw way so, this and so I try like... to put a nice wrapper it's like Express is to um, nodes built in HTTP server, for example. Ah, uh, um, yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Okay, great. That's really helpful. And then tell me about the threading model in native re- in native OCaml. Is it like uh, Node where you just have one thread and you're just doing context switching? Yes, exactly. It's almost uh, a, 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 it's quite a lot like JavaScript promises. In okay. fact. Um, Somebody in the community, Anton, um, in fact, who is one of is one of the maintainers of uh, LWT, which is a native OCaml threading system, which I'm using in Reweb. He has actually extracted the Node.js um, event evented uh, architecture libuv uh, library, and he's ported it over to OCaml, or he's rather he's he's written wrappers over it for OCaml. Interesting. So you can actually use Node's threading model or event model in OCaml if you want. Wow, interesting. So then why at this point, like why wouldn't you just use node? Or is it because you want the advantages of the speed of the system uh, and the compilation being able to have just one binary and the native whole na- native ecosystem around you? Yeah, uh, so I kind of I, I kind deep. of uh, feel envious of the position that Go is in with regards to systems and uh, you know 
web servers and services. And I, and I feel like OCaml has the potential to get to that position. Okay. And, and I want to encourage that as much as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny because I said, well, why would you other than, and then I gave a bunch of reasons why. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot exactly. of sense. Well, that is super cool. Okay, so listeners, check out ReWeb. Check out um, Yower's book. Check out type-driven development and any any other like salient points that we say. If there's one thing you remember remember from this episode, it's uh, it's one thing you remember. Uh, it's um, just uh, don't be afraid uh, to ask questions. The community is great. Excellent. Okay. Perfect. And so you can you can reach both of us on Discord, uh, probably on Twitter as well. I think that your Twitter handle is the same as your name. Mine is Mr. Murphy Tweets. Um, so feel free to reach out to us if you have questions, suggestions, ideas, or if you just want to tell us how, how much you enjoyed listening to the podcast. <laughs> Always happy to chat reason. Okay, great. So, um, Yawar, you got any picks? Uh, well, I would uh, probably pick um, the paper that I mentioned earlier, Your Server as a Function by Marius Erickson. I think it's, a, it's short and a really good read. Okay, well, we'll link, put that in the sh- link for the show notes. And my pick that I'm going to have today is the Indie Hackers podcast um, and the Indie Hackers community online. I recently started just gobbling up this podcast as I've been interested in starting some of my own projects on the side. Really cool place to learn how about normal people who have taken their ideas and and made them into a profitable business and and become their own uh, their own bosses and and done good in the world all by themselves. So love that. Recommend it. Cool. All right. Yawar, thank you so much for taking the time with me today and talking about this on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Murphy. And thanks to all you listeners, too. We'll see you next time. Bye.